Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the ILEA Review of Books. This is episode 9 of the ILEA Review podcast, and the first part of a two-part series featuring Dr. Glenn Van Brummelen, professor of mathematical sciences and dean of the Faculty of Natural and Applied Sciences at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. He is the author most recently of The Doctrine of Triangles, A History of Modern Trigonometry, published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. On this first part of the series, however, he joins us to discuss the prequel to that book, The Mathematics of the Heavens and the Earth, The Early History of Trigonometry, published in 2009 by Princeton University Press. Dr. Van Bremelen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So what is spherical trigonometry? Do we still care about it today? Oh, man, I could talk for the entire episode about that. As you know, from you remember from school, when you do regular trigonometry, it's on a flat piece of paper. Everything's happening in simple two dimensions. But when you really want to use trigonometry out in the world, it's not necessarily happening on a flat surface. And most of the most powerful uses of trigonometry happen on a sphere, not on a flat surface. Think of navigators trying to sail around the Earth. Um, They're on a sphere. The Earth is a sphere, not a flat surface, as everyone has always known. And if you step outside and look up at the sky for astronomy, the sky is a sphere as well. So to be able to do mathematics in a way that can make a difference to these people, you need to know how to do it on a sphere. In fact, there's a famous story about this at West Point Military Academy. They're actually starting to teach spherical trigonometry again to the cadets. The reason being that for navigation, nowadays people use GPS, but if there was going to be some sort of attack by a foreign nation, the GPS could be knocked out by an electromagnetic pulse or something like it. So at West Point, they are now again teaching spherical trigonometry so that if that were to happen, the ships would still be able to find their way by the sailors looking up into the heavens, not for calling to God for help, but for using the stars to figure out where exactly they are. I think that's a fantastic segue to the book, Mathematics of the Heavens and the Earth. In it, you explore three sources of our trigonometric heritage, Alexandria and Greece, India and the Islamic world. What I'd like to do is go through each of them and ask you for one or two key points about each. So first, the Alexandrians. Oh, that's great. For Greece, this is where I actually started getting interested in this subject. The word science has a lot of different kinds of meanings and flavors, and a lot of people, especially historians of science, will argue the word science really isn't necessarily appropriate the way we use it for ancient cultures. But there are ways in which ancient cultures, of course, are exploring the world around them. And trigonometry is right at the heart of where the ancient Greeks started to convert from thinking about the word theoretically and transitioning into something like science, at least, where they were looking up, for instance, Hipparchus of Rhodes, the person who more or less started trigonometry, was trying to predict eclipses. And so he had theoretical geometrical models for the motions of the heavens, but he wanted to quantify them. He wanted to be able to go outside and say, look over that direction. That's where the sun is going to be at this time tomorrow. And so by quantifying the geometric models, this was a way in which Greek knowledge 
kind of leaned into something we might consider to be science, a way of turning a model into a prediction about what's going to happen in the universe. And I gather it was the Greeks who may have had some kind of intellectual linkage with the culture of India, which you explore next. So what are one or two key points that you think we should know about the Indian mathematics in question? Oh, yeah. India is, that's a very complicated question. I think there's a very strong case to be made that Indian trigonometry was influenced originally by Greek astronomy and trigonometry. But that is a controversial question, and there will be people who will disagree with that. In fact, one thing that the most obvious reason why you want to pay attention to Indian trigonometry is that it was in India that the basic functions we use today were invented. The Greeks didn't have the sine or the verse sine or the cosine. Those were Indian inventions. And one of the reasons that's interesting is that India it has a very different way of knowing. These, these astronomers thought quite differently about the heavens than the Greeks did, or even than the Babylonians. They were very computational. I mean, they had geometric models, but the geometric models played different roles for them than they did for the ancient Greeks or even for us. So there was a lot of observation of numerical patterns in the trigonometry of medieval India. And they noticed a number of things that we might call calculus today. Already back in like 500 AD, there were astronomers in India who were noticing that the differences between entries in a sine table work in a way that's like a sine table itself. And it's like a, what we would call a cosine. And those sorts of computational patterns that they noticed are sort of imaged in what we call calculus today. In fact, probably one of the most amazing discoveries in Indian trigonometry, or even in all of trigonometry, was in the 14th through 15th centuries, where in the province of Kerala, a group of astronomers took the trig functions, the sine and the cosine, and developed arguments that led to what we now call Taylor series for the sine and the cosine. They were using infinitesimal processes in order to derive expressions for calculating sines and cosines for the purpose of their astronomy. They were doing this 300 years before Brooke Taylor was ever born. And that had a lot to do with some of the freedom of the way they had to think about mathematics that came in part from their computational emphasis. That's pretty interesting. I recall Googling once for Archimedes' derivation of pi. And in one of the derivations that you can find online, the creator of it invokes the trig functions in order to explain how Archimedes did his proof or did his work. But Archimedes was an Indian, so I gather this must have been anachronistic, ahistorical. In fact, Archimedes lived before trigonometry in Greece was invented. Wow. This is where history of math is really, really difficult in some ways to properly interpret. Inside of Euclid's Elements, which is even before Archimedes, there's a theorem that you could read as the law of cosines, this law that you learned in 11th grade. But of course, Euclid didn't have trigonometry. He had a geometric relationship that corresponds to what we would call the law of cosines, but he didn't think of it the way we do when we think of the law of cosines, and he certainly wasn't inserting numbers and angles into them. So you have to be very careful about what you read into historical texts when you're doing mathematics. 
We actually had Dr. Charles Burnett on the show a couple of weeks ago to talk about his work in the history of science and the history of the sciences. And he had some pretty interesting comments about the, the tapestry of the many different cultures that were weaved together that produced modern science. Yeah. Yeah. Professor Burnett is one of the leaders in our field, and he's very, very sensitive to these issues, to treating ancient cultures the way they would have treated themselves, thinking about them in their context rather than ours. Well, let's wrap up this discussion of the early history of trigonometry by turning to the last of the three cultures that you examine in the book, the Islamic world. What should we know about Muslim mathematicians and their role in the history of trigonometry? Well, they, they were actually sort of, they took input both from India combined with Persia as well as Greece and combined these different approaches into a single powerful tool. So I would think of Islam, at least at the beginning, as appropriating the mathematics of these two cultures and bringing them together. They enhanced the theory quite a bit. They took what they consider to be the best of both cultures and went forward. And around the 10th and 11th centuries, especially in spherical trigonometry, enhanced it to the point that it was an extremely powerful tool. But it wasn't just a powerful tool for mathematics and for astronomy. One of the things that's really crucial about Islamic trigonometry is the way that it got used to go beyond the traditional ways in which these subjects were used. In particular, this has to do with religious rituals of several kinds, finding the direction of Mecca to pray. This turns out to be a problem of spherical astronomy. And there is a sense, at least, in which you could say that this was one of the ways in which trigonometry went beyond astronomy and came down to the surface of the earth and became something about geography. And that's part of the reason for the title of the book, The Mathematics of the Heavens and the Earth. The earth part takes place in the Islamic world and with the direction of Mecca and a couple of other religious ritual requirements. The Greeks, the Indians, and the Muslims. That's the early history of trigonometry. On the second part of this two-episode series, we will turn to the history of modern trigonometry and Dr. Van Brummelen's book, The Doctrine of Triangles. This interview was conducted on July 13, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the ILEA Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.